Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The National Lottery, under the spotlight, politicians criticise the use of almost 120 million euro in unclaimed prizes on advertising. Did you ever write to the operator and say, within the terms of the licence, I'm concerned about the balance that you're achieving. Would you like to reflect on that and come back? The government asks members of the public to open up their unoccupied homes to Ukrainian refugees. As we come into a very cold winter in, the, in that region, it is more than likely that we will see more and more people seeking, seeking refuge here. Later, we'll hear the latest on the trial of Regency murder accused Jerry the Monk Hutch and the other stories that caught our eye this week. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag Tonight VMTV. begin tonight with the National Lottery. Many of us will buy a ticket dreaming of life-changing amounts of money that could just be a few numbers away. But today, there was serious criticism of the lottery in the Dáil, especially over how the lotto has used almost €120 million Euro in unclaimed prizes. Here is some of that exchange. Did you ever write to the operator and say, within the terms of the licence, I'm concerned about the balance that you're achieving. Would you like to reflect on that and come back? No, I, as I said, my, my advice and my understanding is that it doesn't prescribe that they should, say, spend more than half on uh, one form of promotion and the other half on another form. Well, let's look more into this and the other stories making the news today. I'm joined by Olivia Kelly, Dublin editor at the Irish Times, Mick Clifford, special correspondent at the Irish Examiner, Finnegale TD, Bernard Durkin, and Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you on this first, Bernard, because given your interest in the workings of the National Lottery, I think when there was a rollover 60 times, I think, and the jackpot got to 19 million euro, um, and you brought that up um, in the doll. Uh, what do you make of this? And I suppose a look at the regulator and the spend as well of national lottery money, 120 million euro on advertising of unclaimed prize money. Yes, the saga goes on and is still going on and a little bit more information emerges every time. And I think that was the problem from the beginning because, first of all, the, the, the lotto was run for a period of six, seven months and nobody could win the main prize. Now, that could be coincidence, uh, but there used to be a situation before that whereby the main prizes were won on a bank holiday weekend. Remember mm -hmm. that? And that... That takes me to the fair a little bit. Okay. That asks the question. So we asked questions about it and we got a certain amount of information <coughs> in, in the public arena. And then we got asked the, the questions about advertising. We asked the questions about 
but about everything. But the one thing that gave a lot of things away was when the lottery started to advertise uh, on the basis that 90% of the proceeds went back to the community. Now, that raised other questions. And the questions then were simply, if that only means 10% for the administration of the lottery, that couldn't be possible, because the best I have ever come across is about 12 14%, 15% mostly. When you go beyond that, it's, 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 it's getting expensive. But... Um, uh, you could come to your own. We came to our own conclusions, obviously, okay. at that particular This stage. was obviously the subject of um, a Dáil committee today because <clears throat> the advertising and the advertising spend uh, was the subject of... Um, came to the attention through the, the Comptroller, uh, Comptroller and Auditor General, not the regulator, Matt Carthy. Um, so it was brought to, I suppose, the public's attention in, in a different way. Um, do you believe, I mean, the regulator was questioned really about her role, and I think it was Brian Stanley of Sinn Féin said, you know, are suggesting that you may be a bystander here um, instead of actually really looking at where the money is going. Uh, do you think there are questions to be asked about how much money is going back into the community, that figure of, of 90%? So there's a, a quite an... I'm a member of the Public Accounts Committee. I was there today for the questioning. And, uh, you know, the Public Accounts Committee deals with every statutory body. Um, I think there's 300 bodies that we deal with, a different group every week. I've never seen a regulatory body um, that has such a hands-off approach to the sector that they're, they're regulating. Um, it has to be said, this goes back to what I would consider to be a disastrous decision on behalf of the then Fine Gael Labour government to actually sell off the national lottery. They sold it off. It was only the second lotto lottery in the world that was sold off for a, a one-off lump and sum payment. that was payment. a 20-year licence, was a 20-year license. It was sold for £405 million. To give an example of the return in dividends and interest payments between 2015 and 2020 alone, the parent company has extracted 229 million already. So over the lifetime of that, they're going to make a substantial amount of profit that should have been um, um, should have been available um, to the Irish people. Essentially, a couple of questions that we put to the regulator. One is in respect of the um, unclaimed prizes, of which there were um, around 122 million euro. And the stipulation in the contract is that that should be spent on special draws, top-up prizes and marketing. Um, but what we have learned because of the controller and auditor general, not because of the regulator, who didn't actually release the information, was that 98% of that is being spent on those advertisements that I would claim are dubious because they claim that 90% is reinvested in okay. the community. But of course, that includes prize funds and it also includes the commission yeah, that so the retailers re um, re receive. No. So a huge sums of money are actually being invested. There's other questions in respect of the fact that, for example, the National Lottery drew down a substantial loan from their parent company, okay. at which they're paying 9% interest. And they drew that down at a time where there was similar interest mm. arrangements available through other financial institutions at 1%. And again, the financial regulator oh, right. basically says so, nothing to see here. So or not the um, lottery's regulator, I should say. OK, and, um, you know, Carol both strongly defended her position, I think, in, in that Dáil committee today, you know, saying, look, this is within the terms of the licence. Mick, when you see this big spend, I mean, big brands would say, look, you know, these are the kind of ad budgets we have. We want to get people playing um, the lotto if it is going to go back to the community in the way it is. Do you buy it? I don't, to be honest with you, Karen. Claire, excuse me, I don't because, I mean, Matt's point, there was no pressure to sell off this lottery. 
And it's inevitable once that happens that the company that comes in to buy it, they're there to make a profit. That's their raison d'etre. It's inevitable they're going to try every particular way to do that. Mm -hmm. It's a question of whether or not that's at a cost to the community. And the notion that 90% is going back, I, it's difficult to fathom in light of what the costs for administering the... Interestingly enough, um, within that, um, the regulator admitted that the 90% um, included money to the retailers. The retailers are within the community. And she says that's actually quite explicit, but I don't think everyone, every politician I, in the room agreed yeah. on that. I, and, and I wouldn't say that many people know that. I, I, I was going to ask, do we have a definition of community? What, mm. what is the breakdown of that 90%? But you'd have to say as well, part of this must be the way that the licence was worded, and that was a function of the Oireachtas. So why did they have it so vague of, well, you can use this for topping up prices, uh, prices and you can use it for marketing and you can use it for a bit of advertising? Well, why wasn't it explicitly broken down that in the terms of the licence, how you use these these monies if they're not claimed. Bernard, that's a problem, isn't it? Well, I'll just correct a couple of things first. Start. First of all, the, the theory was that there was no need to sell in, in the first place. A lot of people have forgotten uh, the situation the country was in a few years ago. And everything that was possible to sell was sold. It's 2015. Uh, uh, no, it was 2015. We weren't out of the wood in 2015 either, by a long, well, long time. Well, there's a slogan there and that Fine Gael had in the election think, year after that suggested think, we were. If you, think, if you think that we were out of the wood in 2015, we were not. Uh, and it is doing the country... No, so no. it's in a precarious situation, sell it off. I think, I think look, uh, the situation... It had, no, it had to be sold. The, the, Did the, it? And board snip... And board snip went I mean, this is this is raised this is since Bernard 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 I think worth noting that since its inception it has raised six billion euro for good causes. That's right. But you wonder the, the you would you would wonder you know when it's taken over by a private company you know by by the very by the very reason that it is a private company it wants to make profit. You mentioned the the the, the good causes. I think that's the important thing and that's the selling point and that's what the public they wanted to. To succeed, mm -hmm. and it ran into it ran into headwinds. There's no doubt about it. Spending the, 120 million on advertising, Bernard. Well, that was pointed out to them at the time. You know, where, where's the rest of the money going? You can't run on 10. percent Where's it? What's happening? Where, what what are you doing? So we got snippets of information. They're actually we, spending we, on the basis far on, more on, on, than on, 120 on, million. On, on, one second now. On, on the basis that they were operating on only 10 percent, can't be done. But the other thing about it is this: it's an important factor in 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 in, in the sporting area and in, in the good cause area all over the country. And the public wanted to succeed. And if if, if things happen mm. that shouldn't happen and damage the integrity insofar as the general public are concerned, well, that's not good for it. All right, and that, that damages it. I imagine that's why it is before an Iraqis committee. But uh, where does it and go we from will, here? Well, we will match? actually have the national lotteries before um, themselves before the um, public accounts committee. We don't have compelability powers with them because they are private company, but they have agreed to come before us. And I suspect that we will also bring the regulator back because regulators have right. um, numerous roles. And part of their role is also to highlight areas where they don't currently have competency. And the regulator for the lottery has never done that. Um, right across the board, in terms of the questions that were put by, um, by representatives from all different parties, the answers weren't there. And this is too important because right. the Irish people are investing hundreds of millions of their hard-earned money every year into this system. Mm -hmm. And it, if, if it's not fully above reproach, 
coach, well then the, those right. questions need to be answered. Okay, we're going to move on to another story now and the government is urging people to yet again open their homes to Ukrainian refugees. Roger Gorman made the announcement this time about unoccupied houses saying he was asking people to pledge their homes for an initial six months. He also admitted that uh, what was there before did need improvement. In February of last year, we used a system that, as you know, had been dealing with maybe 100, 150 applications for a year, and, and all of a sudden it got, it, it got over 20,000. Um, you know, if I was doing it again, we, we'd do it differently. We've learned from that process, and this is why we're bringing in the, 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 the local authorities for vacant homes from day one. Yeah, um, and we know, Olivia, 64,000 uh, refugees have arrived here since mm. the war. The government now going back to the drawing board, doubling that, that offer of €400 Euro to €800. Euro. Yeah. Um, what do you make of all this? Is it a sign um, that, that they're really struggling to manage the situation? Well, well yes, it is. And, and obviously that, that 66-odd uh, thousand people, are, that's going to grow when they've already admitted that. You know, we're, you can add... 10,000 onto that by the end of the year. But the, when you mentioned there the, the doubling of the money, that's just not going to cut it. You know, it, it, if you have a vacant property and you're not renting it out, you're, you're not doing it because of the difference between 400 euro and, and 800 euro. And this didn't work last time and it isn't going to work again. And it's even less likely to work this time out, I'd say, because at the time it was such a shock um, the war in Ukraine, and there was such, you know, that, that almost that telethon mentality of, oh, God, we have to do something, and you had people pledging their properties. And again, as often happens with telethons, the pledges mm -hmm. didn't materialise in, into, you know, fact. Um, so you don't think much is going to come I really don't. And as well, push. I think as well that the six-month is a mistake because I think that was one of the things last time that would have had people pledging some properties in that they thought, well, this, this won't last long, you know, it, you know, maybe someone will need somewhere for a few weeks, for a couple of months. You know, it's clear that that's not mm. the case anymore. But six months, and I don't, I'm not painting anyone as selfish, but people who say have holiday homes, they will be thinking, well, I want to use the holiday home at, at Easter time or that's coming into the summer, that's coming into May and I, I'd like to have use my yeah. holiday home then. That and maybe it, people yeah. have different priorities um, that the government would, would wish them to it's, have it's in this instance. It's a lot to ask, you know. Um, Mick, um, to ask you about this, because one of the hopes is to fill unoccupied homes. It is to fill holiday homes. But in many instances, you need a car to get to your holiday home. They're not necessarily places that were, are right next to public transport, next to a train station. Um, is, and that seems to go against the idea of, you know, that, that actually you want, you want people in these situations to be integrated, to be close to services. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen that myself. I sat in the summer down in South Kerry where an awful lot of Ukrainians were um, in outlying areas, like, for instance, uh, Banskellig's, Port McGeady's places. And the people are out there. They're bored senseless. They want work. Do you know, they're not people lying about. But as you say, not, not alone that, you, you, I would have seen them in the summer on the road hitching lifts because you don't even have the kind of transport services out there. And those are exactly the kind of places right up the western seaboard in particular where you're going to have holiday homes that the government is now looking to utilise. I don't blame them for doing it that way. And I can understand Roderick O'Gorman saying we didn't get it right at the very first juncture because this is something completely new. But there's also the issue 
that I mm. even personally know people who offered accommodation and they didn't hear a single thing for months. So on that level of administration, there's been some major problems. If those were ironed out alone, mm. it, I think it would have far more... I impact than, than this announcement I think what we're today. hearing now is that it is all going to go to the local authorities, that they will be seeking out these unoccupied properties. But uh, Bernard Durkin, is it really a sign that we are at like, last resort and that there aren't really other options left when you have hotels being filled with refugees and we don't have this you know, modular housing or emergency housing that was due to come on stream, that we have to yet again go back to people and say, if you haven't done it before, you know, please get on board. Of course, it's a very challenging situation. It's a unique situation. A, year, a little over a year ago, nobody anticipated this at all. And, and the, 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 there are huge uh, side effects, uh, energy shortages, food shortages, uh, and, and, and accommodation shortages. Yeah, I know, but I, ac I actually am recalling at the time with that, Bernard, that, you know, there were predictions we could see 100 to 120,000 people coming in here, um, you know, seeking refuge from war. Now, there are 64,000, like it's a sizable number. But at the same time, shouldn't we have a strategy at least in we, place we, now? Yes, well, two things, one thing certainly has happened. The government indicated uh, to the Ukraine that we were running short in terms of accommodation, that we couldn't guarantee uh, all of the, the people who are coming on shore, we couldn't guarantee their accommodation. So that's obviously a common problem. It's not only here, it's all across Europe. The challenge is everywhere. And in some countries there are huge numbers of people and they're intense. We don't want to do that here. And I think to be fair, I think the Minister is, is, is attempting to address an yes, evolving situation. and address situation. something um, short term. I suppose the question is, Matt, where, where is the strategy? Where is the plan? Like we have heard, we even heard um, a proposal this week um, from Catherine Day, uh, a former Secretary General of the European Commission saying, you know, when we look at, 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 at what we're doing with, with the rise generally in refugees coming into the country, and this would be asylum seekers from countries other than Ukraine, we need to do things like bypass planning. We need to build, you know, more reception centres, more short-term short centres for people, and more needs to be done and really that needs to be said about now. Would Sinn Féin agree with that? So you mentioned the speculation in terms of the numbers that we could be dealing with. You, um, you have to remember that it was actually the government that were doing the speculating on our national oh, yes, airways. They was. were talking I, about I, I firmly remember that. It was Helen McEntee at Dublin to Airport. 200,000. Yes, I'm aware um, and, of that. And all that is... they were asked to do was, say, was to put in place a plan to cater for that because Mick is absolutely right. Um, I'm dealing with people to this day who have made offers. In some cases, um, these are people who have um, potential accommodation for multiple peoples who are facing a brick wall in okay, terms so of their, their, inter, uh, if their interactions. If they're coming to you and they're saying, do you know what, we have We have yeah. a room or we have a, a house that we're not using and we've been on and we've made our pledge and we've heard nothing, what answers are you getting? So what we're contacting the department. So in some instances, yes, we're freeing up that accommodation. In other, in, in other matters, we're told it's under consideration, what, whatever that means. Um, but to answer your question, there is the, the underlying problem that we're facing is the fact 
that we had a housing crisis to begin with. We had an accommodation crisis. When I hear Roderick O'Gorman talking about vacant local property-owned dwellings, you know, people have been shouting at the government for years in respect to freeing up that accommodation, freeing up those dwellings in order to address the housing crisis that, that was there. So it's hard to have confidence that within a very short period of time, we're going to see large numbers of vacant dwellings in that vein coming under and um, becoming uh, available. And that's, um, it goes to the crux of all of, of of, of the fact that this government don't seem to be able to plan like, comprehensively what, what, sorry, to deal with Matt, any of what, the what big issues. What would Sinn Féin do in this instance? So, Because we've had you on the programme before and you've said those vacant houses should be used. Oh, absolutely, they should be used. My fear is that I don't have confidence that the government will be able to free them up within the time span and within the current framework that they have. Um, because this, mm. the local authorities operate under the Department of Housing. Now we have the Department of Children with responsibility. There seems running around changing yeah. proposals um, uh, at, a, at a whim. And the level of consultation, I have to say, in terms of both with opposition members of the Oireachtas, but also with local communities involved in terms of you know, GP access, schools access, does, you know, goes way beyond even housing, is minimal to be yeah. generous. And we know that's been in the spotlight. And I think the government and Roderick O'Gorman said today, look, there will be further, there will be more consultation on this. Um, but, you know, Olivia, like in general, this is not going to be, you, you talked about the six months there and to promise it until then, this could go on much longer. Um, people can't immediately return to homes in Ukraine and um, they may have to be rebuilt. We don't know. Families are, are torn apart essentially and mm -hmm. it, it's long term now. We have to look. Would you agree with that? Not just with the Ukrainian situation, but also with the rise in the number of people uh, seeking emergency shelter in this country, as we've seen with the, the, the new figures out today, I think, from the ESRI. Yeah, certainly long-term solutions are, are going to be needed for... It's very clear that more and more people are going to be coming here. Now, a lot of people will, and I think the Ukrainians are, are probably key among this, will, when they can go back, go back, because ultimately... It's, they're fleeing because of war. There's no other reasons here. It's, it's not, you know, economic reasons, which may be tied in with some other people's reasons for coming here. But yeah, no, we, we certainly do need a more long-term solution. But even if you're talking about a medium-term solution, uh, uh, the modular housing, that ultimately will help our own housing crisis. Mm -hmm. If you can get those modular units there, when they're no longer needed for these people who will go home, they're then there for our own population who need housing. All right, okay. Um, and we'll have to see where much talk of those modular uh, housing plans go as well. That is all we have time for on that. My thanks to Bernard Durkin and Matt Carthy. Olivia and Mick will be staying on as we look at the big stories at the Colour Eye today and we get the latest from the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. Stay with us. Welcome back. We want to give you an update now on the big criminal trial taking place at the moment, that of Jerry the Monk Hutch. He's accused of the murder of Kinahan gang member David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in 2016, a charge he denies. The trial has heard final recordings of a bugged conversation between Jerry Hutch and former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdall. Well, earlier I spoke to our court reporter Deborah Naylor to get the very latest. 
Deborah, when were these conversations between Jerry the Monk Hutch and Jonathan Dowdle recorded? Claire, these are uh, recordings from the 7th of March 2016. Now, it's one month at this point after the Regency Hotel attack and the prosecution says that the two men travel north on that date for a meeting with IRA figures and it is the state's case uh, that Jerry Hutch, known as the monk, that he had asked Jonathan Dowdall to arrange a meeting with his Republican contacts in order to try and broker some kind of uh, mediation in the Hutch-Kinnan feud. Now, over the course of the three days in the Special Criminal Court, what we heard... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Was everything from conversations about the Regency attack, um, how Gardaí were progressing with the investigation into the murder of David Byrne, the efforts to make uh, a ceasefire with the Kinahans, all topics of conversation really from pop stars, politics uh, to explosives over 10 hours. Yeah, we got some pretty colourful details, didn't we, in these bugged conversations? We did, and at one point in these conversations, uh, Jerry Hutch, uh, he referred to Garthi at the time. He said they were running around like headless chickens after the Regency attack, and he described how uh, Daniel Kinahan looked like he was in an effing heap in photographs that he had seen in the papers um, after the shooting. And Dowdall, for his part, well, he had to go at one point at uh, Sinn Féin President Mary Lou Macdonald. He, at this stage, had left the party. He had to go with her for apparently sticking her head in the sand, as he put after the Regency attack and not attending the funeral of Jerry Hutch's brother, which was three days after the Regency attack. And many times in these 10 hours, there was almost like idle chit-chat, gossip, you can even describe it, between the two. Jonathan Dowdall certainly appeared 
as someone who did not like silence. And at one point, even in particular, it was described in court, uh, we heard in court rather, that stenographers, they couldn't keep up. So it was the pace of the conversations between the two. We heard that Jerry Hutch, he's a fan of the singer Imelda May. And there was many times there was roaring laughing because at one point, Jonathan Dowdell said that he had read in the papers that there was a million dollars on Mr Hutch and Mr Hutch uh, called himself the million dollar man. Uh, but what have the prosecution specifically focused on in their case against Jerry the Monk Hutch? Well, they referred to this in the opening of the trial and they referred to a specific mention of uh, what they said was three yokes. And we heard in the first day of, this of these recordings, Jerry Hutch refer to these three yokes, how he was throwing them up there, he, he said, as a present. And the prosecution said that this was an inescapable inference to the three guns that were used in the Regency, that were used to murder David Byrne. And uh, Hutch later refers to these as a massive statement. But during the course of these conversations, there's a lot of discussions about the Kinahan group, the nature of it, these efforts to make a ceasefire after this alleged meeting with Republicans in the North and the prosecution and described this as part of the core of its case against Jerry Hutch, who denies David Byrne's murder. But Deborah, a detailed and long as they are now much publicised, these recordings actually, though heard by non-jury, could ultimately be excluded in evidence. Is that right? Yeah, this is one of the unusual things about the Special Criminal Court. We have now heard all of these recordings. Ultimately, they may not be admitted as evidence in the trial. Uh, Mr Hutch's lawyer, uh, Brendan Grehany, has objected to their admissibility because he says the majority of the recordings actually took place in the north. Therefore, when the men were outside of this jurisdiction, he's described these as illicit fruit and that uh, the state should not be able to benefit from obtaining these illegally. We're going to hear a lot more about this tomorrow. It will be a day of legal argument. The court will make a ruling on this at a later point. OK, Deborah, thank you for bringing us up to date. Well, let's take a look now at the other stories that got us talking this week. Olivia Kelly and Mick Clifford are still with me. And I'm joined by Louise Byrne, political correspondent at the Irish Mirror. Um, you're very welcome to the programme, Louise. Um, let's talk, I suppose it is the week that the World Cup kicked off in Qatar. Um, as expected, mired in controversy um, ahead, of, ahead of it. And, um, and we got some upsets this week, as well as, I guess, planned protest that then turned out to be nothing more than a damp squib, Olivia. Um, what's, your, what's your take on all of this? And I suppose the initial attempts by footballers or, you know, by the footballing bodies to take, to take a stance and to say something about, you know, LGBTQ yeah. rights and, and other matters that have all come to the fore in Qatar. Well, I'd say everyone is waiting for my take on the World Cup, but I'll maybe leave that aside. <laughs> With bated breath, Olivia. <laughs> and, and stick to the protests. Yeah, I... There's two aspects to this, I think. You know, I can understand why the the individual footballers, why they would have resiled from, from the notion that they'd get a yellow card, which, if I'm understanding it correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rick, uh, it would mean that they may be excluded from the, the following match. If they get a second one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, given, you know, that this may be their one opportunity mm. for a World Cup, you know, if they, if they weren't able to play a match, they may not be on the team in four years' time. So I can understand why they'd step back for it. But what I would say is the teams, they, they, they all said they were happy to take the fines. But if they were happy to do that, if they had all come together and all said, no, no, we'll, you know, do your yellow cards if you want to, that wouldn't have happened then. 
because it would have scuppered the whole tournament if every team was getting yellow cards. So I think they could yeah. have taken this stand and they and, just and, chose not and to. And presumably they did talk out all the potential consequences of them wearing this armband, which wasn't even, you know, anything official. I mean, someone said it wasn't even a rainbow, you know. It, it, was, a, it was a meek enough stance, if you like, Mick. Yeah, but I, I think the fact that it was going to be yellow card only came to light uh, within 24, 48 hours before mm. the first game. However, I'd take a slightly different view. I think they should have... I think they should have on the basis of making some kind of a stand. If you look at the first game, England and Iran, the Iranian team didn't sing the national anthem on the basis of the protests that are going on in their country. Now, they're returning to a totalitarian regime there. They had courage to do something that, you know, it's, it, it may have impact on them back home. Mm -hmm. It didn't take a lot of courage on the part of the European captains. OK, the captains would have got a yellow yeah. card. I believe that if they all had done it, they would ultimately have got rescinded and they'd have been able to put enough pressure on FIFA to ensure so. And I think just the contrast between what the Iranians did and their circumstances compared to, you know, the Europeans that have been well able to do it if they put You're it. You're still yeah. watching it, though. Like, maybe the footballers well, yeah. re reflect the audience as well. That many people too, are saying, too, I'm not yeah. going to watch this World Cup, you know, there's all these... Yeah, there's all these saying, I watched it every issues. night, unfortunately. I well, it. I just did, like, you know, yeah. you're, you're pulled into it, that's opium of the masses or whatever, you know, there's that, an element that's to that. That's what thing. happens, yeah, that's, that, that's what happens, some would say. And there have been major upsets already with now the Saudi uh, win over Argentina. Um, but, Louise, you know, Ireland have a lot of trade with Qatar and that's um, something that should be looked at, uh, Leo Varadkar said at the weekend, did he? Um, but considering that the government has never mentioned this as an issue in the past, do you really think that they're going to reassess anything? And what's interesting is around this time last year, we had a Minister of State from Leo Varadkar's Department of Enterprise on a trade mission in Qatar and the United Arab Emirates. So, I mean, trade deals come and go, and I think you do have to take into consideration these human rights violations. Mm. And Ireland aren't at the World Cup, which I don't know if that's for better or for worse, but you would wonder what would the government have done if they had been there? Would they have gone? Would they have supported it? But I do think, you know, when it comes to trade and stuff like that, it is something that has to be looked at because it goes so much deeper than football and it goes to, you know, the building of the stadium, how many people died there. So It, it, it never seems to, to impact on trade deals when you look at it. When you Saudi look at everything... Arabia. Yeah, Saudi Arabia and everyone was up in arms about the golfers and, and we're still doing all the deals. So, you know, I think there's a lot of talking out about sides look of the mouth there, isn't there. China, who, who, who's going to opt out a trade deal with China? Mm. Look at the human rights abuses there. Okay. I know we should. I mean, it, it's hypocritical. Mm. But unfortunately, that, 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 that's the nature of it. Un, unless everyone acts together, which they won't, where, where are you going to go with it? Um, let's talk now about uh, the Scali report. And this was um, the, 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 the final report, I suppose, looking, looking back at the recommendations that were issued to government in the wake of the cervical check scandal, Olivia and what needs to be done, what actions are needed, and, and uh, the issue around open disclosure mm. and candour and all of that. Uh, what struck me around this was the women at the heart of this scandal said in this, told um, Jared Scully, that some doctors had turned them down because of their involvement with the 221 group. Yeah. And if there was ever a need for a culture to change, it, it, that's really a sign of it, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really central to what remains to be done. And it's just, it's just the level of disrespect towards these women, you know. And you'd, the ethics of it has to be questioned as well. Are they denying people treatment because they're part of a campaign group? You know, are they telling these women because you've chosen to stand up for yourself in a particular way, I don't want anything to mm -hmm. do with you? You know, it, you know, is there questions 
for these individual doctors mm -hmm. in relation to how they're performing here? And should that be looked into, maybe? Yeah, there's a lot expected to happen now politically, Mick, on this. Um, but that would require this huge cultural shift within the medical profession in this area where you really don't see people holding up their hands and saying, we're sorry, we were wrong. No, and some of it comes from a cultural litigation. Uh, in, in the medical profession in particular, they're scared stiff of uh, litigation and perhaps that's an area that needs to be looked at. But there is also, you know, not to put too fine a point of it, a certain God complex there in some quarters. Mm -hmm. And that approach to women who have been affected like that, I mean... Yeah. It, it really, really reflects badly mm -hmm. on people who take a Hippocratic, Hippocratic oath and they dedicate themselves to medicine. It, it, it's something that definitely there needs to be addressed in some form or another. Yeah, and that patient safety bill has some way um, to go yet. Um, I want to talk about um, Leo Vradker landing himself in hot water with his grass is greener um, comments. He made them with uh, uh, talking to Gavin Riley on the record at the weekend on his show. And he said, you know, in reality, you know you're not going to find that rents are lower in New York and that it's easier to buy a house in Sydney. It might be the case if you go to a very rural area or a third or fourth tier city, but that can be true in Ireland too. So sometimes the grass looks greener. Um, talk about... <laughs> really managing uh, to rile up, I think, a lot of young people. Yeah, and I mean, I'm at the age and stage of my life now where a lot of my friends, a lot of my peers are emigrating and they're not going with the thing of, oh, the grass is greener. They're taking these decisions, really hard decisions. They're leaving their friends, they're leaving their families, they're leaving jobs because they don't feel like that they can stay and they don't feel that they can afford to stay. They can't find a place to live. They can't afford to buy. They're being squeezed out of Dublin, places that they grew up in and they're going. And it's not you know, an idea that the grass is always greener, it's that they have to go. And I think they don't need to hear these comments from the Taunashta. I think what they want to hear from the Taunashta is what are they doing? What's he doing on housing? What's he doing on all these things? And I mean, he mentioned this. I was at the Finnegale Ardesh last weekend and he, during his speech, he spoke to young people and he said, there's light at the end of the tunnel. But for a lot of people, it doesn't feel like that. And I think that really needs to be taken on board when comments like this are being made. Yeah, interesting as well, Olivia, that, you know, specifically talking about Sydney and New York, that is where you have mega rents, but also great salaries. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a ridiculous comparison, you know. Like, you know, he said, oh, you know, maybe in third or fourth tier cities, like in comparison to Sydney or New York, surely we're eight, nine, tenth, eleventh tiered cities. It's like comparing rents in Balahadreen with rents in Dublin. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's entirely ridiculous. You're, you know, as well. You know, there's um, if you have to leave the country, if you really don't want to go. That's a terrible tragedy. But a lot of people go and are going, because it's good crack to go and live in a different city for, you know, a few years and come back. Or some people go and never come back. You yeah. know, there is and that is element that, to is that, it as well. Is that um, Leo Fradker's point, do you think, when he's saying that, that, look, you know, we've always had this sort of culture of going abroad and wanting to see it isn't, you know, a big flight and a mass exodus because it's awful here. It's just that Irish people have always liked to travel. Ah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I did it myself, and most people I know did. But I mean, the difference in terms of my generation when we did it, the thought of after three, four, five, six, seven years or whatever abroad, the idea that you want to go back, and people do feel that pull to want to go back. Mm -hmm. The difference today is those who do want to go back 
have to pause because they realise if they go back, the chances are that notion of buying a house or whatever is just beyond reach. And, and I, I think that's at the heart of it. He, he's right to the extent that it is the grass is greener because people want to travel. But the problem is, once you go, the actual coming back, which is the second part of it for a lot of people, is very difficult. And the other thing it's, it speaks to as well is the fact that his government and his Fine Gael governments over the last 10 years have been very successful with the macroeconomic situation. But within that, it has opened up a great generational divide. So those who are older, of his, my generation, for example, have done a lot better out of it. But those who are younger, and particularly in terms of housing, they're the ones who are suffering greatest under the current uh, problems. Yeah, we're certainly seeing that gap widening. Um, let's talk about another measure that's coming in that we're not sure is really going to benefit consumers. That's the windfall tax. Um, which is going to be on the profits of, of, of profit-making energy companies. Um, Louise, on that, I mean, I think people are still trying to figure out, does the government look like it'll be using the money for their own measures? Will they be feeding it back into, you know, renewables? What's happening with it? And will, will any of us end up with it in our back pocket? Well, on budget night back in September, we were asking about this potential windfall tax and it was said, well, we'll see what happens in Europe. It might come in there afterwards. And in the next breath, they were announcing these three 200 euro energy credits and they were saying, we have the money for this, the money that for these credits will come out of our own budget and then any windfall tax that might come down the line, well, that could be for further measures. Now we hear today reported that Cabinet was told on Tuesday that, well, we don't know if that can go for further measures or if it'll be for the ones that already used I asked Tonish at the doorstep yesterday what this windfall tax would be used for. Would it be used for further measures? He said it was too early to make the call, which sounds to me like it more than likely won't be. But I think when it was said that those original credits were going to be used from existing money, I think if it's not used from existing money and this windfall tax isn't put back into people's bills, I don't think it's going to go down particularly well with people. Yeah, and the big one as well is actually how much money are they going to get from it because the, the figure seems to wildly vary between some 340 million and 1.9 billion. Very hard to tell uh, how the wind blows, the government say on that one. It depends how much uh, energy is generated and profits are made. Uh, we will have to take a quick break there, but much more of the news stories of the week in just a few moments, so do stay with us. Welcome back. Olivia Kelly, Mick Clifford and Louise Byrne are still with me. And we want to talk now about, I suppose, it's a big week in retail, isn't it? It's, it's Black Friday. Um, Louise, explain, if you will, I mean, are there deals to be had this week? We, I, we got some mad statistics, about 45, actually, no, 18 million euro a minute or something being spent by Irish people over this weekend with the discounts that, that, that orig originated in the US, of course, but it's, it's gone global now. Yeah, and I hate to admit that a large amount of money will probably be mine um, because I'm one of these Black Friday shoppers. No cost of living crisis in your house, Louise. Oh, well, there will be come mid-December when I'm waiting for payday, but however. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and I mean, the other thing that's being said this week is actually about keeping people safe online because I think it's so easy to lose the run of yourself on Black Friday and you see mm -hmm. all these offers and the Christmas is coming up and you're thinking, oh, well, I'll get all my presents now. But uh, the amount of money actually being 
taken from people through fraud this year. It's nearly 45 million euro from Irish consumers in the second half of last year. So I think there's been warnings from the Guardi and people like this to actually try and keep yourself safe. But I think it's so easy to do when you're looking for those bargains and they flash up in front of you that you just kind of lose the run of yourself. I know I do anyway. So mm -hmm. a lot of money to be spent this weekend, I think. Yeah, and year after year, like we hear um, that they're putting up prices to put them down and that's the way that, you know, you're not always getting the deal you think you're getting. And for those people who are really clued in and maybe you know, watching for a while over, say, a big electronic product or something they want to buy, they're seeing that there isn't actually a huge discount to be had at the end of the day, Olivia. There, there's barely a time a year now that there isn't a sale on. You know, there's there's some shops that are just in perpetual sale. But yeah, it, it, it seems to be the way that they can, they can legally... Um, you know, if there's a certain length of time in between, they can say have a have a price in August, September, then hike that price for October into November, and then lower it again, and it's still a sale. It's still the great mm -hmm. deal. And um, you know, maybe people know that and don't mind it so much, and like the excitement of the big day, you know, the big event that the, that they that is Black Friday at this stage. Yeah. Also, I think you know, I mentioned cost of living before, and people are looking at their pennies. I think this year, when it comes to festive spending, I know the retailers are well aware of that people might be looking at things for a while, whether they're actually going out and making those big purchases is another thing. Yeah, definitely. I have to admit, Claire, I'm very old-fashioned in that way. I wait for the old January sales and get I thought out. you were going to say, I wait for December 8th uh, when we all go to Dublin. <laughs> and get togged out for the year then in the January sales. Like, you know, but Black Friday... I think I came, might have been in the States when I came across Black Friday first and I thought it was this really weird sort of idea of uh, first... Or it was the last Friday in November of uh, these sales and... Uh, of course, like everything else, then it ends up here and suddenly it's as if it was here all the time, but it's passed me by. Yeah, um, there's also Cyber Monday, but again, I think that's just all rolled into one. Um, let's talk about, you know, we're talking about the festive season and I think um, there's a Love Actually reunion on the cards. Uh, I think we can, I think we have a little clip um, from what for what's in store for those fans of the iconic movie. Love secrets of one of the most loved Christmas movies of all time. And just wait until you hear how the stars answer this question now. Love actually is... And how did you answer? Oh, dead. Loved <laughs> them. Mick uh, Clifford just asked, is Julia Roberts in this one? <laughs> I get mixed up with Notting Hill. I get mixed up with Notting Hill. That's the one I... Easily done. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's really something, though, as with all of these kind of Christmas movies that divides the public. Olivia, you're not a fan. <laughs> no, I'm not a fan. But I think it says it all there, the American voiceover there. I don't, is it for people on this side of the water at all? Or is it just, you know, that sort of cliched, the, you know, that real kind of jolly British Christmas thing that the Americans love. Yeah, Is it not all that? That's it's crap, to be honest. The, the film's crap. Well, it's crap. a huge global hit. And, and yeah, like, there, no, will be people, there will be some people... Louise, you're, you're sacrilege. To That's <laughs> absolute sacrilege. Um, it, it, what we're saying is, is an hour-long special offering new right. insight into behind-the-scenes secrets. Do what, we care do about you, this kind of... Do, do we care about this kind of thing? We did have the Friends reunion, a similar kind of look back. Yeah. 
Um, and the Harry Potter last Christmas, so we're kind of sticking with the reunions at Christmas time. I think they're really lovely, and I think if I feel I'm like <laughs> I'm very sentimental and soppy now, so maybe take that with a pinch of salt. But I think when there's cult classics like this and things that people... People are obsessed with this film. Like, I like it, but people are absolutely obsessed. She's absolutely not in it. I do like Notting Hill, though, as well. That's a great movie. But but movies like this and shows like that and that those things that people grew up watching Mm -hmm. or that they were out when they were younger, I think people have such a connection to them. So I think no matter what they do, this is going to be You know, you're talking about nostalgia there and we are hearing about a bit of 90s nostalgia with a Blur reunion, Uh, Mick. Were you in the Blur or Oasis (sighs) camp? Was it your thing? Where were you at in the 90s? I'd probably been more Oasis, but the interesting thing about Oasis is the, the notion of Nolan Liam Gallagher sharing a stage again and not kicking the heads off each other, I think that'd be something to behold, all right. Yeah, well, um, we'll have to wait for that because what instead we have is Blur announcing a 2023 show to take place at London's Wembley Stadium on the 8th of July um, and Malahide Castle, um, very importantly, on June 24th. you know, with all of this, I wonder have they got a whole legion of new fans? Because Damon Albarn, of course, was w- w- still tours with the Gorillas, oh. and uh, so you know, it's not like yeah, he's going yeah. back. So many other side projects as exactly. well, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if, if sort of reunion is the right term. Have they ever really gone away? Like they 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 play reasonably frequently. Like I I saw them in London a few years ago, and somebody's probably going to tell me oh, that that was ten years ago or fifteen years ago <laughs> or something like that. But it, I don't think it was that long. I think I think it was within the last five to seven years, maybe. Okay, yeah, but, but should yeah, they all go in these yeah. reunions now because they're trying to pump up whatever album well, sales it, or whatever it, things they it, can it, do? It happens when most of them have nothing better to be doing since they left yeah. the band. All right, okay, <laughs> there we'll have to leave it. Um, but before we go, we do want to remember uh, Richard Grogan, who passed away this week. And Richard was a guest many times in this show explaining employment law with forensic skill and wit, and he brought those skills to an online audience, um, his videos on TikTok reaching a whole new audience. So we, on The Tonight Show, will miss him. And that is it from us. My thanks to the panel tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok, Tonight VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.